Well, I said to Paul, I'm leaving. We were in Apple, and I just, on the way over to, I knew before I went to Toronto, I told Alan I was leaving. I told Eric Clapton and Klaus that I was leaving, and I'd like to probably use them as a group, you know. I hadn't decided how to do it, uh, to have a permanent new group or or what. And then I, later on, I thought, I'm not going to get stuck with another set of people, you know, whoever they are. So, But I, I announced it to myself and to the people around me on the way to Toronto a few days before. Or, and on the plane, Alan came with me. I told Alan, you know, it's over. And then when I got back, there was a few meetings. And Alan said, well, cool it, cool it, because there was a lot to do, you know. <laughs> business-wise, it wouldn't have been suitable at the time, you know. And then we were discussing something in the office with Paul, and uh, Paul was saying something or other, like, like to do something, or... And I kept saying no, 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 uh, to everything he said, you see. So it came to a point I had to say something, and Paul said, well, what do you mean? And so I said, I mean, uh, uh, the group's over, I'm leaving. He, he'll remember exactly, and she will, but this is my, how I see it. Uh, Alan was saying, don't tell. He didn't want me to tell Paul even, you know. And but I couldn't help. So I thought, it's out. You know, I couldn't stop it. It came out. Mm -hmm. And Paul and Alan said they were glad that I wasn't going to announce it. That I was going to make an event out of it, you know. Mm -hmm. But Paul and Alan both. I don't know whether Paul said don't tell anybody, but he was damn pleased that I wasn't. You know, he said, oh well, that means nothing really happened if you're not going to say anything. So that's what happened. Well, I mean, like like anybody when you say divorce, you know, the face goes all sorts of colours. It's like he knew really that this was the final thing, you know. Welcome to this week's One Day with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm Lonnie Pena. So we're back with Sam Wiles of the Paul or Nothing podcast. We're going to continue with where we left off on the interactions between John Paul, George, and Ringo through late 1969 and early 1970. To briefly summarize what we came up with in part one, you know, they like to say that the split was the split, and they just came back for I Me Mine, but that really actually wasn't the case. They were really still living in each other's back pockets for at least another year through the end of 71. Yeah, to some degree that was going on. A lot of interaction between at least three of the Beatles, and then dots were connecting to John, you know, through George and Ringo. 
but not between Paul and John. There was a disconnect there at that point in time. Now, one thing which I find really interesting, as we discussed last week, Paul was finishing up the more commercial half of McCartney in Abbey Road in early 1970. And at exactly the same time, Phil Spector was in Abbey Road working on the Let It Be tapes. They must have bumped into each other. There must have been an awkward conversation that even Lewison will never find out about. There has to be. But Paul likes to tell us that, oh, I didn't know until they sent me the acetate. Well, you were there. Phil Spector was there. Are you, you mean to tell me that you didn't just pop in and say, oh, well, what's going on now? Yeah, absolutely. I guess it depends if you think Paul or Phil Spector's a more reliable source there. Or is either of them reliable? You know, both of them have their uh, quirks, shall we say? Fortunately, Paul's are less uh, homicidal. Yeah, Spector's definitely a a quirky guy. We'll uh, leave that one there. Uh, Obviously, Spector would then go on to do Harrison's first release. They started working together. I always felt Spectre would go to Lennon first. I don't know why, but George was obviously clearly impressed at how Spectre can take very small little demo-type tracks that like Glyn Johns was working with for uh, Let It Be and turn them into these huge pop numbers. And I've always found it in- interesting with all of the post-Beatle releases how they're all kind of reactionary to, to Let It Be. McCartney's done a very stripped-down version, kind of what Let It Be was supposed to be. Uh, we're going to see with Lennon how it's kind of him saying, oh, this is how stripped down supposed to be done in his very electric way. And then we've got George here, who's the only Beatle who's kind of building on the experiences of Abbey Road and Let It Be. And I guess that is because he's been held back for so long and we get to see this huge uh, splendor and flourish uh, with all of the songs on this album. But you know, rather than deconstructing the Beatles sound, you know, Harrison is building on top of it. And at least at this point, I think he's benefiting from all of that the most. Well, absolutely. I mean, true to form, George, he really had none of these signs of grief. It's like, okay, I'm just moving on. And he was happy to move on. It's one of those relationships where, you know, you're glad to be broken up. And he's like, wow, I can show them now. And, my God, how many songs were held back for this album? Yeah. Uh, isn't it a pity, Art of Dying, they they go back to 66, and then, you know, you got Let It Down, the title track, they were all kicked off, Let It Be. Sit in another chair I can feel you here Looking like I don't care But I do
occupy my mind You know, George must have been so motivated to deliver the best album ever. <laughs> right. And he actually did. He did. It's great. I love this album so much. It I'm is. So to listen to it again. Yeah. It, it's just, it's it's pretty amazing. He had, it was just a whole ball of energy just waiting to explode and to be released that, um, you know, all things must pass. This was my first eight track, by the way. Uh, I bought this as an eight track, a double eight track. I still have one of the eight tracks. But uh, I listened to this over and over and over. It's just amazing. And even the poster that George included in yeah. the All Things Must Pass album, you know, <laughs> that was a very sort of, okay, I'm going to do the Beatle thing, but I'm going to do it in my own way. Yeah, it's like shadow, right? Coming out of the shadows. Yep. But it's just like lurking there. Here I am. It's almost a figure of Christ. I hate to say that, you know, bigger than Jesus. But it's like this huge shadow coming at you. And it's George, the quiet one. It's a difficult album to listen to in the modern day, because if you go on Spotify, the only version you've got is the remastered version. And that's got 
loads of new tracks inserted in places that's not just tacked on the end, like, say, a McCartney archive re-release. So you have to listen to the whole album with, like, a Wikipedia article open just so you're listening to the right songs in the right order. The other great thing about All Things Must Pass that we can't ignore is that Ringo also plays drums on this album. So we are already starting the whole Beatles collaborative process, though I think the very first one would be uh, McCartney appearing on Sentimental Journey, and he would be one of the arrangers on that. I think that was the very first one chronologically. I guess, like so many people theorise, you know, the breakup wasn't as dramatic and explosive as more sensationalist authors might lead you to believe. Yeah, I mean, despite the argument in Let It Be, George and Paul didn't seem to have this sort of deep-based hatred. That came a little bit later for some reason. Yeah. Paul and and George really didn't have too much collaboration at all, right? Post-Beatles. George was never on a Paul song and vice versa. I mean, yeah, ever. that is correct. Yeah, well, uh, all those years ago. And well, as close as they ever got well, was uh, George was supposed to be on uh, Wanderlust. Yeah, but but he wasn't, you know, and, and it's, um, I don't know. They, they, I think there was some somewhat of a, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say bad blood, but there was something between them. And, and they were the oldest friends, right? I mean. Yeah, they were the first friends. Yeah, it's what George says in Anthology, you know, Paul won't let me forget that uh, he's eight months older yeah. than I am. And you, you can actually see some of that kind of relationship between them in the Anthology, especially when they were sitting uh, by the, I think, a lake and George was playing the ukulele and, and Paul was trying to talk to him. But George was like ignoring him to some degree. <laughs> oh, it's very awkward to watch all of that an- Anthology stuff. Uh yeah, there's definitely some old wounds there that that we're not we're not privy to. Even just going back through most of the Beatles' career, how many of George's songs have something from Paul? Whether it's the lead guitar parts done by Paul or extra lyrics were put in by Paul. Right. I guess George has always been under under Paul's shadow in in some respects, and under John's shadow in other respects. Yeah, I'll play whatever you want me to play, or I won't play at all. By the time we got to Let It Be, we couldn't play the game anymore. We could see through each other. And therefore, we felt uncomfortable because up till then, we really believed intensely in what we're doing and the product we put out and everything had to be just right. And we believed. Suddenly, we didn't believe. Okay, well, I don't mind. I'll I'll play, you know, whatever you want me to play. Or I won't play at all if you don't want me to play. No, whatever it is that would please you, I'll do it. We couldn't do it anymore. It had come to a point where it was no longer creating magic and the camera sort of... Being in the room with us made us aware of that, that it was a phony situation, and that was the end of it. But then, you know, it was John who got so upset about George's book, you know, mentioning, quote, every two-bit horn player that was ever on a session, and he didn't mention me. True, true. But they were together quite a bit, you know, in the early 70s. Kind of crazy. Well, I mean, again, I guess that just goes to show you their relationship really held all the way through their entire lives, but uh, they were particularly tied together in this period that we're talking about. Yeah, no, true. It seems that in the divorce, John got to keep the children. (laughs) (laughs) So out of the uh, All Things Must Pass sessions, uh, George had brought in a number of Nashville players, including Pete Drake. Yeah, and he and Ringo get together. Ringo sees a bunch of 
country albums in his car and he's quite impressed and he's like Ringo why don't you do a country album and then we end up with Buku of Blues oh yeah. <laughs> I've never listened to it until uh, researching this episode so thank you for giving me this topic it's something isn't it it's quite a record you know I, I can understand why a lot of people can't get into it but it's old school country and, you know, again, like we had mentioned, uh, I guess, two weeks ago, you know, Ringo was trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do? And one of his options was, okay, I'm going to stay in music. I'm good at these, you know, Buck Owens type tunes. Maybe I'll go in that direction. Yeah. It was a perfect album for Ringo. But like Sam, I, I think I've only listened to the album once, and that was in the 70s, literally. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, it's perfect for Ringo. That that was his, you know, coming out album. It's his first album. So, you know, yeah, it worked for Ringo. With all of these Ringo albums, I've noticed with Paul, you've, you've got to go into the material, the right mindset. If you're going into a Ringo album going, oh, it's not very good. These songs aren't very well written and it's quite derivative and his voice doesn't have much of a range, then you're not going to have a good time. But if, like me, you do love the Ringo shtick already, then you are going to find it quite charming in places. But with Buku specifically, I've never cared for the country part of Ringo's brand within the Beatles, so I couldn't get much into this. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now to get back to the, the Lennon side of you know, what was going on here, McCartney came out with his interview and he fairly definitively got credit for breaking up the Beatles that seemed to annoy John no end yeah he did not like that that he made he made some notion of that right in the Rolling Stones interview from, from early from 1970 Well, I mean, uh, for better or for worse, what came into John's life right about the same time as McCartney issuing the McCartney press release was the Arthur Janoff book, The Primal Screen. Yeah. yeah. And interestingly enough, we don't know who sent it to John. According to all historical records, it just showed up in the mail at Tittenhurst Park. Maybe it was Paul. <laughs> Look, this is going to make you very angry, John. Yeah. So I thought, I thought I'd start to calm you down a bit. You know? There you go. But certainly uh, it proved uh, quite a bit of change in John. Or was it? I mean, because John well, always spoke I, his mind. He always spoke his mind. He wasn't one to, you know... I don't know, cover things up much of his thoughts. It's a, it's a process that's going on. We primal almost daily. And the only difference, the thing that, the, see, I don't really want to get this big primal thing going because it gets so embarrassing, you know. And the thing, in a nutshell, a primal therapy allowed us to feel feelings continually. And those feelings usually make you cry. It takes him out of action for like four months in like the whole year, though, because we get instant karma on the 6th of Feb, yeah. um, going to number five. But then pretty much until the very end of the year, like John pretty much bookends the whole solo Beatle experience of 1970, because then Plastic Owner Band doesn't come out till the 11th of December. 
Yeah, exactly. So it was really March of 1970 that uh, John reached out and got in touch with Janov and invited him in to Tittenhurst. So Arthur and Vivian actually came over and they started the therapy with John and Yoko. When did Plastic Ono Band recording start? You said you wrote most of them in California? Well, a lot of it, actually. I wrote Mother in England, didn't I? And uh, Isolation in England. It just seems though it was all written. I finished them off in California. I mean, you can go into detail. if You, you have to push me if you want more yeah, detail, because otherwise I'll just Look forget. Yeah. Look at Me was written uh, around the Beatles' double album time. You know, I just never got it, got it done. You know. There was a few like that lying around. Uh, the recording didn't start until September. Until September? So yeah, yeah. So yeah, like you said, that was some months between there. As with India, John went in whole hog, and they went as far as they could at Tittenhurst, and Janov uh, invited him back to the, the clinic in Los Angeles. And that basically spawned an infinite series of hilarious actors having having to scream whilst doing a John Lennon impression. If I could be a fisherman, I would, but I can't because I'm an equal genius! I was a walrus! Paul wasn't a walrus! I was just saying that to be nice, but I was actually the walrus! Even that rubbish he's been singing! Eastman was an animal! A stupid middle-class pig! I won't look at animals like that near me! Your guys are supreme intellectual! I'll tell you why nobody likes her music! Because she's a woman and she's oriental, that's why! Where are you, mother? We're trying to crucify me! Genius is bad! It, it all seems a slightly ridiculous looking back with hindsight, but... It wasn't to John at the time. It, it was it was very much affecting to him, and it comes out in the majority of the work on the album. It is anger, but it's not just anger about the Beatles. It is anger about all of the crap that John had been through. It's, it's right. really just an yeah. extension of you know what he put on the Christmas record, in, yeah. including yeah. some of their beast friends. Yeah. Now, were John and Yoko filming anything at that time? any more live appearances ever together how about a free concert in Hyde Park perhaps someday William Park of Liverpool uh, it's always possible you know I mean it's it's almost impossible for me to say what I'm gonna do tomorrow so to say what four guys individually are gonna do in the future is, is impossible you know? but it's always possible that the Beatles will do a live show is it is it true that it's mostly down to Ringo who doesn't want a tour that uh, no, no, it isn't that, you know, I mean, we all change our minds about different things all the time, you know, as we get more involved with different things, it's a matter of even taking the time out to discuss what we might do. You know, uh, Beatles are growing up now, and they're four very sensitive artists, you know, and so that uh, it's not like uh, sort of four canned goods, you just patch it together, you know, and, uh, and they can't do it that way, you know. They're independent people, each one of them, very, on a very high degree. Were they doing some Yoko films? Well, uh, Janov wanted to film some of the Primal Scream sessions, but Lennon told him to fight half the said, Okay, okay. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the whole thing, was the therapy was supposed to last uh, four months throughout the entire summer of 1970. And, you know, about half three quarters of the way through it Janov introduced a camera 
Man, that a film was, camera, okay. and, and John was like, uh-uh. Right. No, no, right. this isn't going to happen. Did he stop? So he stopped cold turkey? <laughs> it's not just Janov who claims it. If you go look in Wiener's book in John's FBI yeah. files, the INS concurs that Lennon just sort of stopped immediately. Yeah, okay. And then he went into the studios and started recording. In, yeah, exactly. September. And, and yeah. then that, that would also be when the interview with Rolling Stone was. Okay. The primal screen okay, was at the mirror, you know. And he was looking at the well, mirror. Let's yeah. talk about it. If people know what I've, what I've been through there, and if they want to find out, they can find out, you know. Otherwise, it turns into that again, you know. Also, during this time, the RAM recording sessions begin. Obviously, McCartney's very charged uh, during this era, so he's going to be very direct in his lyrics uh, for all the songs during this time. Also, in the October of 70, you've got Ringo's first recordings of early 1970, where he's singing about all the other Beatles. Uh, Paul, rather notably, is the only one where Ringo isn't sure. A brand new wife and a family. And when he comes to town, I wonder if he'll play with me. Whereas he has actually physically played with the other two by this point. Yeah, and that was, what was that, the B-side, right? Um, it Don't Come. It Don't Come Easy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was that was nice. I like that song. <laughs> the thing yeah. about early 1970, before there was a Sirius XM Beatles channel, there was a Beatles channel here in town, and, and I used to always call up and request it from the DJs, <laughs> and, and, and uniformly their response was, what song from early 1970? No, the song early 1970. Yeah. It was an Abbott and Costello routine. Was that and these the... are professional disc jockeys <laughs> working for an all-Beatles radio station. That was a KBTL, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mid-80s. Mid Beatles Radio number 9, KBTL. Susie and the Red Stripes and Seaside Woman. And Ron Shannon at 1242, traveling down Penny Lane with you. 3905978 is our number. Be caller 9 and make your guess. Seems like every American radio station has to have, has to have a K and a B in it somewhere. Post-primal, Lennon expresses anger to the world, both in, on the Plastic Ono Band album and uh, on Yoko Plastic Ono Band. Yeah. Have we listened to Yoko Plastic Ono Band? I'm sorry to say I haven't. Uh, I have. It's actually not a terrible record. Even if you're not one who appreciates Yoko, there's a lot of primal, not to misuse the word, guitar playing on it. Oh, I thought you were going to say vocals. Some of John's hardest rocking guitar yeah. throughout his whole career is on Yoko, yeah. Yoko on a Plastic Ono Band. Yeah, no, I've listened to it once or twice over the years in the 70s. And uh, yeah, you're right. You know, Lennon's guitar work is, is, is pretty incredible actually, on that album. The actual Lennon album itself, though, it seems to be just the antithesis of things like Abbey Road, you know, this ultimate polished record, and then he just releases an album's worth of songs where every song's just, eh, 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 these, these terribly 
stark and uh, metallic guitar sounds. Although he, he's probably the most direct of all the Beatles with his lyrics at this point, I guess. And we could probably yeah. all, have, all have expected it from him. He doesn't believe in Beatles would obviously be uh, the biggest one. Though um, it, uh, God's also the first of two songs where John mentions the song Yesterday. And you can still tell, even in 1970, the success of that song is stuck in his craw <laughs> to no end. Yeah. But then he tries to out McCartney McCartney with love. Yeah, the ballad. Yeah, uh, Lennon out McCartney McCartney on the next album with uh, Crippled Inside. John Lennon Plastic Auto Band is, is a very angry record particularly where we're at in 2020 i think it actually fits the times and it may fit the times better than mccartney although that too has its place in 2020 yeah you, you know you say it's an angry record and, and it, it's obviously true but also it's a very true to itself you know it's very true record it's very raw and like you said it, it it's a good uh, correlation to to 2020 I mean, it's very raw. It's very true. Let's let's get back to the basics, which is what Get Back was trying to get to, right? <laughs> but John does it properly. Yeah, John's like, this yeah. is this, this is how the one after nine oh nine should have sounded, you know? Nope, but sounds just like him. <laughs> um, well, there's a reason why isolation has become a yeah. pop standard this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe that the Beatle that isolated Paul McCartney and has allies like Klein and Yoko and use the other two Beatles essentially as weapons is still the one that feels isolated? You know, I mean, that's just how personal this album is. Yeah. Uh, an album that Ringo also plays on again as well, we have to mention. Yep. Yeah, there, there's right. a video on uh, the making of Plastic on uh, the classic album series. That's a really great documentary it's it's about an hour long oh, okay it was released on dvd a while back and it was a documentary on on what now the making Ju- of- just on the making of john lennon plastic okay Band. okay yeah i think i remember that yeah i think it's on uh yeah either you, it was on netflix for a while uh yeah oh, i think God. so one of the things that where we kind of started talking about this was you know, Plastic Auto Band and McCartney are, to a certain extent, reflections of each other. No, yeah, yeah. Is it fair to compare them? Though? They're very apples and oranges. Uh, I've heard some people say it might be more apt to compare McCartney to uh, the wedding album uh, and, and, un- and unfinished music, like it is that kind of experimentally unfinished. And I, like I know we mentioned on the last episode that the second half of the recordings for that album, songs like Every Night and Maybe Up Amazed, are a lot more professional and uh, you know they do warrant being on a proper album release and they do legitimize the album somewhat plastic ono band is a much more competent beast like it is a proper album with a consistent theme and sound uh, mccartney is sadly all over the place on his on his self-titled album uh, and you're right it hasn't aged as well pretty much only the title track and every night uh, are are really ever discussed um, although I'll often discuss how much I hate Korean Acrore, but that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> well, okay, so, so since you bring that up, uh, one of the first things you notice is that neither of them really have a feeling for how to end uh, the record. You know, McCartney really should have let Maybe I'm Amazed be the final song, and uh, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band 
putting something after God, uh, even if it's just uh, 49 seconds of My Mummy's Dead, don't do it. Oh, I've always kind of liked My Mummy's Dead. It's like, of course, on the first John Lennon solo album, he does a song about how he's got a dead mom. Like, it's the most John thing ever. It's. Uh, I don't mind the song, but I would have stuck it either at the front of one of the discs or at the end of side one. You end the record with God. You end the record with, you know, (laughs) I just believe in me. It's like the the way Paul wanted uh, the Let It Be film to originally end with that news footage of like the Beatles have broken up. Like you're right, it would have been much more dramatic. Same with maybe I'm, I'm amazed uh, closing that album. So we'll just kind of close off pointing where things go in the future. Uh, McCartney would go into Ram. Paul chose New York Session men who would end up playing with George Harrison and John Lennon. Pretty amazing, right? Ram is very much more obviously polished album than McCartney. He's collaborating with other musicians. And uh, I think that certainly um, it comes out in the album. It's a much better album. The shame about Ram is that McCartney doesn't realize that he's working uh, at his best when he is with session musicians that right. are not supposedly on the same equal level. Oh, I'm, I'm just the bassist in the band. You know, forget all of that, Paul. Just tell people what to do, people who can do it really well like Hugh McCracken and Denny Sywell, and they will just deliver you Ram like they did, and that's why it's the best post-Beatles album, if you don't mind me saying so. Well, and then John would come up with Imagine. Once the anger had passed into acceptance, uh, to, to keep yeah. up our, our analogy here, you know, uh, John describes it as Plastic Ono Band with the chocolate sauce on top of it but i i don't really think that's the case i think that was more where his songwriting chops were at at the time yeah and 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 a little bit more produced album than plastic on oban george and ringo are throughout the album or no wait a minute ringo didn't play and ringo's uh, notable contribution was don't you think that that's a little bit rough on him yeah (laughs) meaning paul and how do you sleep yeah right how do you sleep? You see, word. Yeah, I can't. I can't believe that was that was shocked. I mean, now that would have been a, a dramatic way to end to end an album, right? <laughs> so you, we can kind of see how they got to the feud. You know, whether or not they were poking at each other through their records, and they they certainly were. But the feud kind of makes sense in light of what we've been talking about these two shows. You it's don't think it was by design, do you? No, I don't think yeah. it was by design, but it, <laughs> but it does make some sense. Yeah, These guys are obsessed with each other. I think we've made that very clear yeah. over these two episodes. Also, though, you know, the inner conspiratorial guy inside, in, inside me cannot help but feel like, you know, these are two guys that are, are aware that whenever they bitch about each other in the papers and in Melody Maker, the, uh, the Twitter of the day, it gets their name in the headlines and... They're well aware of that. The Beatles at the time, when they were all four, when they were the four-headed demon, they knew how to make the media play to their tune. And there's a slight possibility, I'm not saying 100%, but there's a possibility that a lot of their back and forth was because it's easier than doing an interview, you know? Right, right. You look at the diss tracks from the rap stars of the the 90s and the aughts, you know, that that was very much that same sort of of emotion carried over to this is publicity. 
it sold records or, and it sold or records. downloads or whatever it was at that time. Then John moved off to New York City. Do we believe that John moved off to New York because Yoko had had enough of living in England? I think they all had by that point, hadn't they? Um, well, they, John, well, Paul still lived, stayed in England, and George still stayed in England. Yeah, I guess just you know the the hectic London life and the and the and the public life, and John always described New York as that place where he could just walk around and people would just say hello and leave him alone. I'm not sure how true that is, um, but I think they were definitely tired of the UK by this point, even if they didn't leave ne- necessarily. Paul, Paul would come up with any any excuse to leave the UK over the next few years, though. So the threads had been pulled. You know, they, they still had connections like any divorced couple, if we're going to use that analogy. But they were living their own lives, really, by that point. Yeah, and their, and their baby was the Beatles, the, the, you know, the entity of the Beatles. People just cannot fathom that people would willingly break up the Beatles, I think is the main point. And one of the key reasons why we're still discussing it in, in, in 2020 now, you know, in hindsight, we're all just sat here thinking, guys, just just chill out. Just put, just put it all aside. Love each other, you know, Harry, Harry Krishna. Why won't you just love each other again? And, uh, you know, it, it just makes for great tragic drama. All right, great. We got any final words here on uh, the the intertwining of the lives of these four gentlemen during the year, the latter half of '69 and into '70, and and the early half of '71, I guess. Well, you know, all I really want to say, you know, it was never a dull moment. You know, it, it's it was like yin yang. One beetle set one thing, and the other beetle counter, you know, punch with another thing. So it was. To some extent, an exciting period of time there in the early 70s. Things start to quiet down, though, you know, by the mid-70s. But uh, pretty interesting times. I'm jealous I wasn't, I wasn't alive to see it, I must admit. Uh, I would have been so grateful to be able to see all of this uh, juicy, juicy drama go down live, I guess. But, yeah, you're right. This is uh, just as uh, exciting as, as any year where the Beatles were still functioning together. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of fun uh, having an excuse to kind of explore this year in, in a bit more detail. There were a few gaps I wasn't aware of. And it is insane how much the, all, all of these stories kind of crisscross and overlap. And it's clear that these guys are never going to be quite out of each other's pockets permanently. Well, and and then I'll just close off with, you know, the business of them signing the dissolution papers uh, a couple years later. You know, that was still them playing games with each other. I know. All the, all the photographs or pictures that you see of that, they're not unhappy, you know? You know There's it, a smile on their faces as they sign away. Well, and we, we talk about, you know, there was, there was Paul and George together in the room signing the papers, and then John, oh, I'm... I'm not showing up. You need to give me more. It's like, oh, come on, John. And then he signs them with May Pang at Disney World of all places. Yeah, crazy. And that and that hasn't been in a movie for some reason. Though um, there is that great footage of uh, George in Living in the Material World, where it's like, I'm just signing more paperwork that I don't know what it means. Oh, I love all of that. 
All right, great. Thanks, Sam. You want to give people a heads up on where they can find uh, Paul or Nothing? Uh, as uh, as mentioned, I was on it. Uh, I at this point, maybe about a month ago, uh, we covered the uh, McCartney videography from the the mid early to mid eighties. Yeah, we did everything from Wonderful Christmas Time right the way up to No More Lonely Nights. Uh, that was a fantastic episode. But yeah, uh, Paul or Nothing, it's my solo Paul McCartney-based podcast. Um, the gimmick at the start, at least, was that I'd not heard the vast majority of Paul's solo work, but of course I'm coming up to off the ground very soon, so that status is always changing. Uh, it's widescreen podcasting, as Paul would say. I have people like uh, Ed on all the time, and I like, I, like, I like to have a nice breadth of guests and breadth of topic and maybe go a little bit deeper on certain aspects of Paul's life that don't always get covered. Uh, I'm sure links will dutifully be posted down below. But yeah, just uh, check out Paul or nothing. All right, great. Thank, thanks for being with us. Uh, Lonnie, you got anything uh, as we close out this week's show? No, I just, uh, again, I appreciate uh, Sam. I appreciate you taking time to be on this podcast with us and uh, we look forward to uh, listening to your show as well and i'll have to have you on as well lonnie ed can't have all the fun (laughs) all right we'll be back next week with a new show stay safe folks take care subscribe to when they was fab on itunes podbean stitcher or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. still is a Beatles. There's no such thing as an ex-Beatle or a former Beatle or a retired Beatle because um, the Beatles are something other than a pop group. I mean, many pop groups are broken up, but the Beatles are not a pop group. They're an abstraction, a sort of a repository for many, for many things. So it's, it's sort of like a pigeonhole in the sky that you can put something in and get an answer. And, a sort of Beatles response to a situation. Do you understand what I mean? And I think that they ful- fulfill a need in in, uh, in in the media for uh, something that's there, that's cheerful and, and human and rich and somehow invulnerable. So the Beatles, if the Beatles is alive as an idea, then I think all four Beatles will respond to that idea at some time or other and become Beatles again. But it's possible they'll never put out another album or another film. Oh, it's possible. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. 